Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. Our Sunday services have now moved online and you can tune in every week for worship, prayer and our weekly sermon by going to christchurchlondon.org forward slash church hyphen at hyphen home. We're now going to hear the talk from this week's Church at Home service. Today's reading is from Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. Then the angel who talked with me returned and woke me up, like someone awakened from sleep. He asked me, What do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it, with seven channels to the lamps. Also there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. I asked the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? He answered, Do you not know what these are? No, my lord, I replied. So he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who dares despise the day of small things, since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel? Well, hello. It's fantastic to be speaking to you today. Uh, I'm sorry for the slightly unusual place where I'm filming this. If you could see the setup around me making this happen in a very tiny space, you would laugh. Um, Essentially, today, my neighbours have decided that this is the day they want to start some major building works. And so this is literally the only place I've been able to find where I'm not drowned out by drilling. And I have lost track of how many takes I have tried to do this sermon in so far. Uh, But we're going to get through it. There are many, many reasons why I can't wait to be back in live services, but this is certainly one of them. Today we are continuing our series called The Spirit-Filled Life, in which we are looking at the work of the Holy Spirit right through Scripture and considering what does it look like for us to live lives empowered by this Holy Spirit. And today's passage is probably the oddest one in this series. If you heard the reading just a few minutes ago and you thought, I have no idea what is going on there, you're in good company. I particularly, preparing this talk, resonated with one verse, verse four, where Zechariah is talking to this angel. And Zechariah says, what are these weird symbols of like lamps and, and, and trees? What do they mean? And the angel says, don't you know? As if it should be really obvious. And Zechariah just goes, no, I don't. So if you are feeling like that, you are in good company. Zechariah didn't have a clue what was going on. And it's taken me quite a while to figure it out as well. And who knows if it, I've even got it quite right. But I'm going to try and help us to sort of tease out what I think this passage is saying and what its relevance might be for us today. And so I might need to work you a little bit harder than normal today. If you want to pause and go and get a coffee, you're totally welcome to do that. But I want to help us to understand something of this strange book of Zechariah and this passage in particular. And I want to tease out two key themes, which are the themes of the temple and the spirit. And we're going to start with the temple. So if you remember back to the very beginning of this series, I talked about how at creation, the Holy Spirit ordered the chaos and created a garden called Eden, which was essentially the very first temple, the place where humanity and God could come together and meet together. 
Fast forward a couple of weeks and Joel looked at the story of Bezalel in the book of Exodus, who was a man who was filled with the Holy Spirit in order to build what was called a tabernacle. Now, this tabernacle, you may remember, was built to resemble Eden. And essentially, it was a symbol to God's people and to the rest of the world that God had not given up on his plan and desire to dwell with humanity. Rather, he wanted to create a new portable Eden, a portable temple that they could carry with them everywhere they went so they could experience his presence in their midst. Fast forward even further. And when the people of God got to the land God had promised them, they built this temple, this permanent structure, which unlike the tabernacle, wasn't portable and couldn't be carried around, but was fixed in one place in Jerusalem as a symbol to the whole world of God's desire to dwell with his people and to bless this world. And the whole of Jewish life was built around this temple and the mountain upon which it was built. It was the place where mankind and God could meet and where humanity could find forgiveness from sins and reconciliation to God through bringing sacrifice. Now, a few years later, about 597 BC, the nation of Babylon attacked Jerusalem, took the people of God into captivity, into exile, and then a few years later, they destroyed Jerusalem and they actually destroyed the temple. Now, this was significant for a number of reasons, not least because to all intents and purposes, it looked like God had been defeated or he had given up on his people. And without the temple, all sorts of religious and existential questions were raised for the people of God in exile. You know, if they didn't have a temple, where could they meet with their God? If they didn't have a temple, where could they offer sacrifices and receive forgiveness from their sins? But in the midst of this harrowing time, this exile, a prophet called Jeremiah said to the people of God, this is going to be limited in scope. It's only going to last 70 years. And after those 70 years are up, you're actually going to go back to the land and you're going to rebuild Jerusalem. And crucially, they are going to rebuild the temple. And you can read about that in the book of Jeremiah. Sure enough, 70 years passed and God's people return back to their land and they start the work of rebuilding the temple. And you can read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah. But quickly they faced all sorts of challenges and opposition, which meant that they laid the foundations and then basically nothing else. And for 20 years, they were unable to complete or even carry on building this temple. And over that time, they got more and more discouraged in the process. And this is when the book of Zechariah is set. And the book of Zechariah is essentially this complex collection of visions and dreams that this prophet had where God was communicating to him what was going on in the midst of their disappointments. And essentially, if I can summarise a lot of the message of Zechariah, it's basically this. God has not given up on his people. He is still going to keep his promises and the temple will be rebuilt. But in the rebuilding of the temple, you'll actually find that that is not the answer to your deepest discouragements and longings and hopes and dreams. Rather, the temple points to something greater than itself. It actually points to one who is going to come and not only restore Israel or Jerusalem, but actually restore the whole of the world. It's what the Jewish scriptures refer to as the Messiah, the, the hoped for one to come. And according to the book of Zechariah, this person to come actually is Jesus. I wish I had time to show you and walk you through the book. It's a beautiful book. But basically, if you read the book of Zechariah and then compare it to the Gospels, particularly Matthew's Gospel, you will just find it is undeniably pointing to and hinting about Jesus. He leaps off every page of this strange little book. But briefly, 
In chapters three and four, there are these two figures that are introduced, both of which together are like a picture, a figure that represents what the one to come, Jesus, would be like. And these two central characters are firstly the character of Zerubbabel, who was involved in building and constructing the temple. Now, crucially, he came from the line of David, so he was a king. And Zerubbabel points to the fact that the one to come would himself be a king in the line of David who would establish the kingdom of God. But crucially, as this chapter says, he will do it not through might and power like other kings do, but he would establish the kingdom through the Holy Spirit. The second character is a character called Joshua, who is a high priest. And he points to the fact that the one to come would not only be a king who would establish the kingdom, he would also deal with people's religious needs. He would reconcile people back into relationship with God. And so these two streams, these two strands, as it were, the kingly strand and the priestly strand come together in Jesus. Jesus is the one who is the king, the son of David, but he is also the great high priest, whose name is literally actually Yeshua, Joshua. God is salvation. And together, these two pictures and the whole of the rest of the book hint at what Jesus would be like when he comes to put this world to rights. And in this passage, it talks up about the stone. It picks up this language of the stone, which seems a little bit odd, but actually was quite crucial in the way Jesus spoke about himself and what he had come to do. It talks in Zechariah 4 about a particular stone, the capstone, which was the final stone that was placed at the top of the temple to finish the whole thing off. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus says this of himself, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And he's quoting one of the Psalms when he says that. But Jesus understood that he was the fulfillment of this prophecy, that he was the, the culmination of the whole idea of the temple. It all pointed to him. But he also knew that the way he would fulfill the prophecies of the temple was through his rejection, that the people that should have recognized him as the Davidic king and the great high priest actually would reject him and ultimately kill him. But through the strange, mysterious workings of God, it was through Jesus' rejection and his death and ultimately his resurrection that he would be able to restore all of creation. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus said this, one greater than the temple is here. He understood that he, in his body, in his life, in his ministry and his death and resurrection, was doing all the temple always pointed towards. He was the place where humanity and God met. He was fully human, fully God, and humans actually got to meet him and therefore encounter God. And he was the place where forgiveness from sins could be found through sacrifice, but not actually through a sacrifice we bring, but through Jesus' own sacrifice and his death and resurrection. In John chapter two, Jesus said this, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up which sounded ludicrous to everyone who heard it, but Jesus wasn't actually talking about the physical temple. He was talking about his body, which would be destroyed at the cross and three days later would raise again from the grave. So the good news of Jesus that Zechariah longs for and hints at, but we find fulfilled in the gospels is this. Jesus is the true temple. If you wanna meet God and know what he's like, you do that by looking at Jesus and encountering him. Jesus is the one who can give us forgiveness for sins and reconciliation back into relationship with our creator through sacrifice, but not a sacrifice we bring, but his own sacrifice of his death and resurrection. Jesus is the true temple. 
Jesus is the hope of the world. Now, I know those are some huge claims and ones that probably raise really large questions for you, questions about Zechariah, questions about the whole story of God and particularly questions about Jesus. And I want to encourage you, if you are not a follower of Jesus, would you consider the claims about him? Consider the claims he made about himself. Consider the evidence for his life, his ministry, his message, his death and his resurrection. And if we can help you in that, we would love to. You may want to talk to a friend who you know comes to our church, you know who is a follower of Jesus, and ask them, what does following Jesus look like for you? How has it changed your life? You may want to join us on a course called Alpha, which is a brilliant place to explore some of these claims. Our most recent course actually started this week, but it's, it's not too late to get on board. You've missed week one, but there's plenty to catch up on and plenty more to explore. Or if you would like to talk and pray with someone today and begin following Jesus, the prayer team would love to do that. You can make use of the request prayer tab at the bottom of the screen. We would love to serve you in that way. But one of the key messages of Zechariah, therefore, is that the temple points to the one who is to come, the great king and priest, Jesus himself. But the second theme that comes up is the theme of the Holy Spirit. And that's where I want to spend the rest of our time together. The whole passage is filled with slightly unusual imagery of light and lampstands and olive trees. And it's kind of hard to get our heads around it. But what's really helpful is to know that actually all of those things are common symbols in Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, for the Holy Spirit. He is often depicted using language of oil or using language of light and fire. And so when Zechariah sees this, I think he is seeing some kind of representation of the presence of God, the Holy Spirit. He sees this lampstand, but it's kind of an unusual lampstand. In essence, it's what's known as a menorah, which was a particular type of lampstand, which was found in the temple or in the tabernacle and was a symbol of the presence of God and the Holy Spirit. Only this menorah was unlike anything Zechariah would ever have seen in the temple. It was actually far, far bigger, and it had this massive bowl, which was like a reservoir for all the oil, which kept it aflame. And then around the side, there were seven different lamps, each of which had seven spouts, which drew oil towards the flame. It's kind of hard to get our heads around exactly what it looked like. Many people have tried depicting it, and various artists have tried uh, putting this on paper, and they all look completely different. And scholars say that essentially the fact that we can't figure out what it looks like is kind of the point, because what it is saying is that the temple and the tabernacle held these lamps, which were representations of the Holy Spirit, but they were pale reflections of what his presence was truly like. You look at them and you get an idea, but really the true presence of God, the true presence of the Holy Spirit goes beyond anything the human imagination can get our heads around. God's presence, his power, his Holy Spirit is far greater than anything the temple ever pointed towards, far greater than our imaginations can grasp. And Zechariah sees this strange, mysterious picture and he doesn't know quite what's going on. But behind the lampstands, he then sees two things. He sees two olive trees and they seem to be somehow connected to the lamp so that the lamp is fed with this constant source of oil that's drawn directly from the trees themselves. Don't ask me how that would work. We don't know. And I think that's kind of the point. When Zechariah asked the angel, what do these two trees represent? The angel says, well, do you not know? They're the two anointed ones which I don't know about you, but that doesn't really clear it up for me. The scholars argue over who they represent and there are various different theories, but I think probably what we're meant to think is that these two olive trees represent the two figures we've already talked about, 
Zerubbabel and Joshua, the kingly line and the priestly line. And together they are a picture of the one who is to come, Jesus. And so putting all these ideas together, I think in essence, the point of this strange vision that Zechariah has is this. The one who is to come, the hope of all the world, who will come from the kingly line and the priestly line, will bring about the presence of God so that we can experience the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And it will be far more glorious than anything ever seen in the tabernacle or the temple. And our ability to experience this presence of God will be inexhaustible and unlimited. We will be like uh, like we receive this constant stream of the spirit that comes from the one who is the great high king and the great high priest, this anointed one. The presence of the Holy Spirit through this anointed one, through Jesus, will be freely available to anyone who believes. And that is exactly what we find when we read the stories of Jesus. When he ascended into heaven, what did he do? At Pentecost, he poured out the Spirit upon anyone who believes. In John chapter 3, it says that he gives the Spirit without measure. That is, when we are in relationship with Jesus, our great King, our great High Priest, we have an, an unlimited, inexhaustible access to the presence of God. And it is his presence, his power in us, that gives us the power we need to continue being his witnesses, to be a blessing to this world and to restore people into relationship with Jesus. When we think about the pain of our world, the brokenness that we experience around us, when we long for healing and justice and an end to conflict and for this world to be put to rights, we know that will ultimately come through Jesus. But when we think about our own mission to be witnesses of Jesus and to anticipate that day when he'll come back and make all things new, what is the power that we do that in? What's the strategy? It's the Holy Spirit. Jesus promises to give us everything we need to fill us with the Holy Spirit so that we can be his witnesses to the end of the earth. And that promise of the Holy Spirit is not a limited amount. You get a little bit and that's good for the rest of your life. We have an inexhaustible, unlimited access to the presence of God empowering us for mission. Verse 10 of this passage says this. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Zerubbabel was the one in charge of building this temple, this massive task that lay before him. And this is the word of God to him, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. I think there is both a warning and an encouragement in here. The warning is this. Don't be tempted to think that this work, this mission we are given, will be ultimately achieved through power or might, as the world might measure those things, by the strategies of other kings and other kingdoms. No, God's kingdom is of an entirely different order. If you read the book of Second Kings or, or the books of Chronicles, you find that one of the main reasons the people of God got sent into exile in the first place was because they pursued power and might rather than trusting God. They made allegiances with other nations. They went to war when instead they should have trusted God as their provider and their king. And when followers of Jesus put their hope in rulers or power or might, or strategies like that, rather than in God himself, that is toxic, and that is not the way of the kingdom. When Christians do that, when they pursue power and, and strategies of might, rather than trusting God, they generally misunderstand the nature of the kingdom and the king himself, 
And they may look more and more powerful in the world's eyes, but actually they end up looking less and less like Jesus. The warning is don't pursue power or might. There's a different way, the way of the spirit. Of course, there's loads more we could say about that. But if if that's the warning, I think the encouragement is this. If you feel like you have no power, if you feel like you have no influence, no might, as the world might measure those things, but if you have the spirit of God, you actually have everything you need. Because ultimately, it is not by might, it is not by power that God will achieve his things or that he can use you. It's by his Holy Spirit. And God can work powerfully through people who feel they have no power, feel they have no might, but are surrendered to him and are filled with and empowered by and in step with his Holy Spirit. I recently read the story of a lady named Lucy Turner Smith, who became known as Elder Lucy Smith. She was born in Georgia in 1875 in a one-room log cabin where she was raised along with her five siblings by a single mother. She grew up, she got married, she had nine children of her own, which in and of itself is quite a feat. And then her husband abandoned her, leaving her to look after these children by herself. She moved to Chicago where she got a job as a seamstress and she carried on caring for her family. And while she was there, she began attending a Pentecostal church where she heard many of the great preachers of her day, William Seymour, John G. Lake, Smith Wigglesworth and plenty of others. And one of their core messages was this, the Holy Spirit is freely available to anyone who believes. And as she heard their message, she started to believe that the Holy Spirit was prompting her to become a preacher and a pastor, and in particular, to pray for the sick to experience physical healing. Now, as a black woman in a white majority church, a single mother of nine children in the early 1900s, she could easily have felt like the odds were stacked against her. She had no power, no might, no influence, no ability to make that happen. And yet what she did have was a relationship with God, the presence of the Spirit in her life, and she had friends. And so she gathered two other women to join with her in her house, praying for the power of the Holy Spirit. They didn't pray for power or might or influence. They simply asked, Holy Spirit, would you come fill us and use us for your glory? And as they prayed and prayed and prayed, God began to answer those prayers. People started to experience healing in those prayer meetings. Word got out. More and more people flocked to join them. And within 10 years, that small prayer meeting of three women had become a church. They had built a building to host their meetings because they'd so quickly outgrown that small home of hers. The building was worth a million dollars in today's money. And by the early 1930s, that church was 5,000 people strong and Lucy was the pastor. Now, it was said that her preaching was nothing particularly remarkable. She didn't preach with power or might or showmanship. Apparently, her grammar was awful and her oratorical skills were pretty lacking. And yet when she prayed, come Holy Spirit, he came in power. Because it's not ultimately by power or might. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit that makes a ministry powerful. And it's estimated that across her life, she saw over 200,000 people physically healed when she prayed for them. People who were deaf or blind or came in in wheelchairs would leave those meetings free and healed. Actually, the basement of the church that she built was decorated, as she said, with with these symbols of God's faithfulness, of canes that people brought in and left behind as they walked free. In addition to this, she did incredible things, starting social action projects which fed people during the Great Depression, or she had projects that clothed poor black families in Chicago. She did amazing things, and when she died in 1952, over 60,000 people came to her public funeral, the biggest funeral in Chicago at that point in history. 
Now, how did she achieve these things? Not by power, not by might, but simply by the presence of the Holy Spirit and faithfulness to what he was calling her to do. This world needs more Elder Lucy Smiths. This world needs us to follow the example of Elder Lucy Smith. We need to be men and women and churches that cry out in prayer for a fresh move of the Holy Spirit. I doubt that she or the two women who who gathered with her ever expected it to grow as big as it did, ever expected God to do the incredible things through them that he ended up doing. I imagine there were days where they felt dejected and despondent and felt like giving up. And yet, as Zechariah 4 says, who dares despise the day of small things? You see, small beginnings can lead to incredible things if you are filled not with power or might by the world standards, but if you are filled with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Great moves of God that are written in our history books, they don't typically start in the halls of power. They don't typically start in a board meeting or a strategy meeting. They start in the rooms where men and women get down on their knees and they cry out for a power they can't find anywhere else but through the presence of God. Not by power, not by might, but by the Holy Spirit. I want to encourage us to be people, to be individuals and to be a church that cry out for a fresh move of the Spirit. We need revival. The other night I decided to take a walk and I live in southwest London and I walked through a street that I'd never been before and up a hill that I'd I'd kind of driven past but I'd never walked down before. And I found myself just walking down this road and suddenly I stopped and I realised that between these two buildings I could see a direct line right towards the city and I didn't realise that I would be able to see that far from where I lived. I've lived around it for ages. I'd never noticed that, that, that place. It was just a tiny crack that I could see. But as I looked across and I could see the huge buildings of the city a long distance away, I found myself just moved to pray. And so I stood there just looking at this city and praying for God to do miracles, for God to pour out his spirit in this city. And I found myself just really overwhelmed by this sense of of love for this city, of feeling like God feels towards this city and believing, God, we need you to do incredible things in this place. I felt, found myself just praying for revival, praying for God to move in power, to heal hearts, to restore lives, to bring justice, to bring freedom, to bring healing and to reconcile people to him in their thousands. We need that. We need a fresh move of the spirit. We need revival. Can I encourage you to be people who pray for revival, who cry out on behalf of our city, Lord, would you send your Holy Spirit in power We need to be people who pray that as individuals, as as groups in our connect group, join us at our prayer meeting on, on Tuesday, wherever you are. Would you cry out to God for more of the Holy Spirit? Pray for this church, pray for this city, that we would experience something of what Elder Lucy Smith and many others have experienced, the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray for our Alpha courses. Pray for our STEPS courses. Pray that when we reopen our services and we're able to gather together again, people who have been longing for hope, longing for community would come flocking to us, that they would find us and that through us they would find connection with Jesus. Pray that God would do miracles in us and through us that we can't manufacture in our own strength. Pray that we will be a blessing to this city materially, physically, spiritually, pray that God would do miracles of healing in us and through us. We need to pray for our church and our city to experience revival that can only come through the Holy Spirit. Now, I know that some people, when you hear that language of revival and praying for God to do miracles, it can just make you kind of turn off a bit. 
Maybe you hear that and you think, well, isn't that just abdicating responsibility, asking God to do a miracle? Shouldn't we just be be committing to action rather than prayer? Those two things are not in opposition to one another. They're not mutually exclusive. Look at the passage, Zechariah 4. Look at verse 9. It says, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. From beginning to end, the temple was built by human hands. I mean, you could literally know the name of the person who laid the final stone and the first stone is Zerubbabel. And to all intents and purposes, it looked like it was something that was done by humans. And yet behind that, the truth was that it was truly a work of the spirit, not power or might, but the spirit of God. That's always been the case. Think of the building of the tabernacle. The Holy Spirit could easily have just called that tent into being like he did with the rest of creation, and yet he chose to work through the hands of an artist filled with the Spirit of God. If that was the strategy for the building of the temple and the tabernacle, you can bet that God is using the same strategy today for the expansion of his kingdom. He longs to work through men and women who give of their own effort and time and energy, but ultimately it's not about their might or power. It's about the work of the Holy Spirit in us and through us. Friends, I want to encourage us to be people who work for the kingdom and cry out for revival. And I want to start now. So I want to pray for us today to experience the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I'd encourage you just to get ready however you need to, whether that's just sitting, standing, kneeling, holding your hands out as a symbol of your willingness and your longing to receive from God. Use your body, your physical posture as a way of saying, God, I need you. I need you to fill me afresh. I'm going to pray. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, fire of God. I pray for each of us now who are watching this and listening to this prayer. I pray that we would experience that inexhaustible access to your presence. Would you give us the spirit without measure, like just unceasing streams into our hearts and our lives? I pray right now that you would fill us with courage and conviction, clothe us with power from on high. And I pray that you would give us faith to partner with you in the renewing of this city. Give us faith to speak to our friends about Jesus, to pray for the sick. And as we do that, will we see miracles? Will we see lives changed, people restored into relationship with you? Would sickness go in the name of Jesus? And will we get to play our part in bringing healing to this hurting city? Justice where people are experiencing injustice. Holy Spirit, our city needs you. We need you. And so we cry out, would you do a miracle in our day? Would we not be content only hearing stories of amazing ways you have acted in the past? Would we see them in our day, in our midst, in our church? Would we have the privilege of seeing the kingdom of God come wherever we find ourselves? Would you do what only you can do? Fill us with your spirit. And use us for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this talk from the Christchurch London podcast. To hear other talks or find out more about our Sunday services, head to ChristchurchLondon.org.